Today we're going to be in John chapter 4, starting in verse 27 till the end of the chapter. This was such a great portion of scripture that I didn't want to rush it, uh, all 54 verses in one Sunday. Uh, I just wanted to break it up so that we could savor the salient points that God is trying to show us through this and how we can apply it to our lives. It's just worth repeating a recap. If you weren't here two Sundays ago, you have this situation where Jesus and the disciples are in Judea, and they need to go due north to Galilee. And right in between those two regions is Samaria. Now, many of the Jews would purposely avoid Samaria, walk an extra distance in the heat and the sun, because really a racial prejudice, and you can find this in the history books, you could find this in the scripture. However, Jesus as the Son of God was not going to be dictated to regarding society's standards. So he decided, and he had a plan, of course, he always does. He went through with his disciples into Samaria. Now again, Jesus was fully God and fully man at this point in history, so his body was weary. They needed to rest. You know, they didn't all jump into the VW happy van and just drive due north 20 miles. They had to do it on foot. So Jesus takes a moment to rest, and the disciples are sent into the village to buy bread and and supplies for refreshment. While Jesus is sitting there, a woman comes to this well to draw water. And he says to her, woman, give me a drink. It comes out kind of odd in the English, but the truth is he was honoring her. We find that she was not only a woman... And possibly by the clothes he wore in his vestments, he would be seen as definitely a Jewish man and most probably a rabbi. So she's taken aback that he would um, speak to her, let alone look at her. Uh, So he honors her with this request, and they have a, a discussion. He speaks about living water, that she won't have to, that she'll never thirst again. And she wants this water, and she thinks he's speaking about the water that she's drawing from the well. But, of course, he's speaking about spiritual things, salvation, indicative of the Holy Spirit, uh, torrents of living water flowing from a person, uh, the overflow of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is we can only pour into others when we're really poured into by God. You know, you can take all the, the world's therapy and all the secular stuff, but, you, you know, you put it aside. The only thing that's really going to help a person is starting with the relationship with Jesus Christ. So basically, the title of the message is A Tale of Two Wells. Now, let me just go a little further with the whole H2O issue. Um, For her, it was H2O. It was hot. She was drawing water. It was difficult. But what he's basically doing is making the dichotomy between the world's well and the Lord's well. In the world's well, let's go past water. We use a lot of things to try to fill us up when we have emptiness. You know, we use uh, maybe a degree so we can get a better job. Um, We move to a different place with better opportunities, and these things are not bad. Uh, It's another, a different relationship, you know? And every time we do something new, we're really going to the world's well, taking a drink. Oh, we feel good for a while, but just like regular water, you get thirsty again. So the point here is that we move and transition from the world's well to the Lord's well. Because fountains of living water, starting with a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship being reconciled back to God as sinful human beings, uh, we are filled and sealed with a part of God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Okay, A lot about the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. So as we go through this, we're going to look at that overtone of two wells and ask ourselves, I, I would assume most people here are believers, but if you're not, well, you certainly came here 
during the right sermon. Uh, so the sermon is over. I explained it all. We can go home and have a barbecue. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> so continuing on in verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And just to me, in my mind, I'm very uh, vivid in my imagination. Uh, to me, it's comical. You know, they come back and nobody dares to ask them this question. But they see her talking with this woman. Not only is she a woman, and he's a rabbi, and the custom was that you didn't speak with a woman in public, but she's a Samaritan, and she's also probably a woman of a bad reputation. And we made that case the last time based on the time she goes to draw water by herself, not with the company of the other, of the other females. So you, and I'm going to get to this point where Jesus found the person that was regarded the least at the bottom of the rung in society, not in God's eyes in society, and he honors her, and he lifts her up, and God eventually uses her as an evangelist, as we'll see. So no one's going to ask him, you know, they're all thinking it, and he could read their thoughts, and oftentimes they would think things, and he would answer them verbally while he was reading their thoughts. The disciples were still living by society's standards, and there was a lot for them to learn walking with Jesus, but Jesus wanted to save everyone. He needed to break their ingrained prejudice and societal mores. And he may need to do the same with us. As we go through the scripture, we need to be open to what the Lord is teaching us. Verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. The woman left her water pot. How unusual. Listen, we've got the air conditioning running right now. I've got some water up here at the pulpit. Um, I'm sure you had plenty to drink before you came here. So you're, you're comfortable. This is a climate where it's hot. It's dry. She's probably parched. She traveled a distance to get to this well in the full heat of the sun. And she leaves the very thing that was going to provide her relief. Water. This woman's life, I submit to you, was completely transformed. She didn't care about the world's water anymore. She wanted this living water, and she wanted everybody she knew to have that water as well. Sadly, today, many are apathetic about God. They're not moved. And it's sad that even in the body of Christ, there are some that spend so much time at the world's well instead of spending time at the Lord's well. Okay? And, and we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we confine God to a very small part in our life, or is he preeminent? You know, do we even wake up and we have a vacation plan and get up in the morning and just say, you know what, Lord, thank you for another day of life. You know, in 20 years of police work, I've seen a lot of lives get cut short. We're not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed the next minute. So do we confine God to a small portion of our life and then when a tragedy strikes, we're mad at him because he doesn't act quick, quick enough to save us out of the problem. Right? It's a little hypocritical. She says, could this be the Christ? Notice the woman's excitement, enthusiasm. Do we share her excitement? Do we get excited about salvation? I got to tell you, I lived more years as a non-believer than a believer. And I am excited. It's hard for me to contain my enthusiasm at times because I know what the Lord saved me from. I knew where I was headed. 
I was part of one of the major denominations, but I was headed right to hell. I can tell you that right now. I did not know the Lord. So I'm really excited about what the Lord did in my life. Do we share that enthusiasm? And that's really what brings us fulfillment when we're uh, being a part of the Lord's plan. Now, this woman risked being labeled a kook. She comes back to the village. She's probably all talking fast, and she's thinking about on the travel what she's going to say to everybody. And maybe one of the guys says, I don't even know her name. It doesn't mention her name. Let's call her Jane, right? So some of the men or one of the men might say, Jane, where's the water pot? Oh, I forgot it. It doesn't matter. Have you lost your mind? Did you put that turban on tight enough so that the sun doesn't get to your head? And we may be also labeled as Bible thumpers, as extremists. But you know what? She didn't care because there was no room in her life after this experience for a lackluster faith. 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Funny again, (laughs) you know, Rabbi, eat. Well, I have food that you have no idea about. And I could just picture the disciples, you know, in their, in their group, maybe there was 10 of them, and James and John were a little bit further off in the distance. And remember, as we read the scripture, you know, James and John wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand and the left. So I could just picture some of the di- disciples going, you know, it was a little suspicious when James and John were walking ahead of us. I bet they snuck him something to eat, and, and they figured they were going to get into his good graces. They're always trying to be on his right hand and his left. But they missed the point. They missed the point. They didn't understand that he wasn't speaking about literal food. They were clueless about spiritual things. And sometimes God has to change our channel as well and get us on the right track. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I want to read uh, two verses in Ecclesiastes 12. Now, Ecclesiastes 12, was, it's attributed to King Solomon. Here's a guy, arguably, who had everything from the world's well. The Bible tells us he had great prosperity. He had uh, money, riches. He had multiple wives. He had uh, chariots and, and the, the most up-to-date technology when it came to military equipment. He was arguably the richest man in the world, all things being equal. And he laments on his life. He looks back because in a lot of ways he got away from God. So this is what he says. In the last two verses of these 12 chapters that he writes retrospectively about drinking from the world's well, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole or entire duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. I mean, you look at some of the most wealthiest people in the world today, and the term is make their first million, as if there's so many more that most of us will never see our first million. But this is, you know, it, it's never enough. You know, no matter what they get, no matter what they accomplish, no matter how many businesses they buy, it's never enough. So here's Solomon at the end of his life, arguably started out very well, did, was following the Lord, but as he started to accumulate wealth and wives and all these different things, it seems that he, he definitely parted from the Lord. And he comes back and says, you know, there's very simple things in life. That's the whole duty of man. 
fear God, keep his commandments. Everything that we do will be brought into judgment one day. To me, that's impressive. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our agenda? And even as believers, does it include the Lord? Is he a part of our life? Is he a part of our family? As we get up every day and maybe see our spouse and our children, we know that there's a solid part of our family. Is God part of our family? Or like I said, do we put him aside somewhere until tragedy strikes? Jesus spent the better part of a few hours with this woman at the well trying to put her on the spiritual track. And now it appears he has to do the same thing with his disciples because they're fixated on food. And this morning, you know, as we think about our plans for the weekend, maybe God has to get us on the right track as well to put all things in the perspective, to put him as a priority. You see this parallel between Jesus and the woman. She sets aside her water. He sets aside his food. Why? Because they're being spiritually fed. And all that stuff is secondary. I remember last year we uh, had a 4th of July outreach, and it was hot. (laughs) And we were out at at the heat of the day, handing out water bottles, you know, uh, tracts, Bibles, praying with people, uh, witnessing to people. Boy, it was a great time. There was 14 of us. And I tell you what, not one person complained. We were out there for hours. I got to tell you, when I got home and I, I laid back on my easy chair, I wasn't getting up. You know, it, was, it would be a hard thing to get me out of that chair. My feet were killing me. But you know what? While we were doing it, truth is, we were being, we were being ministered to. You know, those, those people, you know, some guy comes along with a fishing pole and we just start talking to him and he, he's like, I can't believe I ran into you. I feel like I'm so estranged from God. Just start praying with the guy. It was so exciting. Even Pastor Vinny gave some of the water to one of the dogs there. But uh, <laughs> got a picture of that somewhere. What is our food? What drives us? Now juxtaposition that. Put it against God's scripture. Does it match up? What are our goals in life? What are our purposes? Is our, our nourishment coming from doing the will of God? From seeing others get saved as well? Because too many are drinking from the world's well. 35. He says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white with the harvest. I really love this. This is an agrarian or agricultural paradigm or model. Just as some plant, oh, excuse me, just as, and I have to make this, this dichotomy here, um, understand that if you walked with Jesus, you know, today we, we're in air-conditioned buildings, we have technology, we have iPhones, most people walk around all day doing this, you know, pressing buttons and looking down. And there's so much beauty around us. But when Jesus spoke, you know, most of it was outside. And he would look around at what was going on. And he would just come up with this parable. And when you looked at the wheat blowing in the wind, you would see the stalks. And eventually when the fruit or the kernel matured, it would turn a whitish. And you would know that it was time to pick it. And you had laborers out in the field. And you know what? Those laborers out in the field, they were out there all day long. And to keep their head from frying and having heat stroke, and you don't really see it here, but it was very smart. They would take white cloth, turbans, and wrap it around their head to keep the heat of the sun off of their brain and not fry it. And they could go all day long like that. And I could just see the the wind blowing and the wheat kernels, the white going back and forth in in unison and harmony. But then I could also see Jesus pointing to a nearby field and looking at the servants, And maybe it wasn't that close. So you could see their turbans 
And as they would go down and they would pick the wheat and they would come up and put it in their baskets and go down and pick the wheat, it almost looked like those wheat kernels blowing in the wind, those white heads going back and forth. And he said, that's the fruit that I'm talking about. Isn't that amazing how he took something physical every time and turned it into a spiritual truth? Under those turbans, under that skin is a soul that God loves. We need to be focused as we pick the wheat and we, 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 we leave the chaff. We need to look at those souls because they're ripe for the harvest. Very exciting. And I've got to tell you something. Today or back then, we don't have to go very far to find a ripe heart that's ready for picking. There's people out there that are hurting. There's people that walk into this church that are hurting. I think America and Europe are really being humbled right before our eyes. I think we're going to see even worse things happen. And I think the harvest is ripe. Do we, are we so caught up in our own lives that we're not looking around us and seeing things that are right under our nose that are divine opportunity? If this was a movie, you would see the starting of the woman's excitement, acquiesce to the Lord's excitement, and then maybe teaching his disciples and spilling on to them. And then as we read it today, we get jacked up. We get excited. We get, you know, this is, this is great stuff. I get to work with the Lord. That's amazing. If we truly follow our Lord, we will share that excitement. 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Again, this model here. Um, the prophets that went before the disciples, many prophets that we read about, you know, often they would preach and they would preach and, and some of them just had, there was just no converts. What Jesus is saying is the words of the scripture, the prophets, God's Holy Spirit, hey, these people are ripe disciples. You need to, you know, you need to change the channel and, um, and be a part of reaping that mature harvest. And we need to see that today. We get to do the same thing. You may run into somebody uh, and you talk about a wide open door. You know, they almost come to you as a stranger and they're just frustrated. They're exasperated. And they just say something to you. I just can't take it anymore. You never met them before. Talk about a wide open door. Well, I know somebody who can help you through this. Right? We get to the blessing of showing them where to go and teaching them how to live. The wages, he speaks about, or payment, are the soul that gets saved. Their blessing is eternal life. And for us, it's the joy that we get to be a partaker of that. Fruit unto eternal life, it pays eternal dividends. Everything we do here as believers has eternal implications. Do you realize that? In our short lives that we live here, everything we do as a believer has eternal implications. I hear so many wondering or worrying about the stock market. Where do, I, where do I put my money? Where can I make an investment? This is the best investment. Because the, the stock channel, this investment never goes down. It just keeps going up, you know. And for eternity, we get to be blessed by that. Very exciting. We look at the sowers and the reapers. Both are necessary, but only God gives the increase. And we see two things here. Number one, the fact that God causes the end product and the fact that we work together eliminates pride. It's a team effort. So that we can't get puffed up because we all work together in this thing. 
And two, that God doesn't grade us by production, but he grades us by input. And everything that we read in the scripture, all these models, concepts, um, parables, are so different than what we see in the world. You know, you go to work and you say, hey, I'm a Christian. You need to, you know, you tell your boss, you need to grade me by my effort and my heart. They're going to be like, you're fired. I want to see your output. God says, I don't care about your output. I'm the one who determines the output. I want to see your effort. I want to see the heart. Pretty exciting stuff. I got to tell you, I'm a product of several people. Years ago, when I was in college and I would work, um, you know, when college was out, and uh, I, w- I remember working in a stair factory, and I was still in my partying lifestyle. I was still not a believer. And I still remember this man. He was in his 80s, old Jamaican man. His name was Lloyd. <laughs> and several years later, I had a pastor named Lloyd. So that's kind of neat there. But he would just have Bible studies. He had these real thick glasses, and he could barely read the pages. But he, all the young men would come and gather around him. And this man, in his age, he seemed frail, but he had so much power. And I never forgot Lloyd. He's gone to be with the Lord at this point now. But he was a part of my formative years as a Christian. You know, God kept trying to get my attention, and eventually I said, why am I running? You know, so he gets to, to, to share in that. It's amazing. Verse 38, they speak about, he speaks about labor. Now, when we look at the Greek semantic range, the word labor has other meanings in addition, you know, more that bring out the flavor of this word. It can also mean weary, pain, or fatigue. Warning, when you go to serve the Lord, sometimes it can bring heartache and pain because you're dealing with others sometimes you pour into others and they break your heart but that's just part of the occupational hazards of trying to bring others into the kingdom and i have to tell you there's too many that don't want to leave their comfort zones and do this but then they'll be i'm unfulfilled i don't understand see as a believer sealed with the holy spirit if we try to straddle both worlds it causes problems for us. We weren't designed for that. So a believer who's really not living for the Lord or has no concern for others finds themselves in a quandary and they find themselves unfulfilled. And God is a gentleman. He's not going to you know, send you to Indonesia tomorrow. You know, he, he might send you there, but it's not going to be, I don't believe it's going to be kicking and screaming. You know, he slowly brings us up in his ways. And he puts people in our paths that we can minister to. It's really neat. Verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. This woman was an instant evangelist. Initially, they believed because of her testimony. And many will believe you because of your testimony. Well, I don't know that much scripture. Well, I have a hard time memorizing. And, you know, sometimes I can't understand some of the deeper things of the word. That's okay. Did your life change? Sure it did. You know, if you've been a believer long enough, there is a testimony that you'll have that you could explain to others. Your life has changed. See, don't discount where you are in life. Because this woman had a bad reputation. She went right to the men Probably because the women shunned her. As we take this whole chapter together, the time of day that she went to draw the water, the conversation that she had with the man, the fact that she goes to the village and goes right to the men. Probably because none of the women wanted her around their husbands. So 
God used her. And she says, he told me all that I ever did. Her sin was exposed, and retrospectively, looking back, she was free to talk about it. It removed the shame. It was past the shame stage. Now, how is this? Because initially, when our sin is exposed, there's conviction and there's repentance. But later is the sweet part, being free, having a testimony. You know, you could have been a, a former adulterer or a thief or even worse, somebody prideful or self-righteous in church, right? A lot of people don't want to come to church because they're going to judge me because of bad experiences. That's just as bad. Pride is awful. So whatever we were, whatever our issue is, now it's a testimony. I come up here every Sunday and I, I, don't, I don't empty the place out when I tell you about my former sin because it's a testimony. It's not going to stick to me anymore. I won't let it, even if somebody tries to do it. The Lord has freed me from that. Now, there's two things that I need to look at here when dealing with sin, and they're both extremes. Condemnation or coddling, and they're both wrong. Condemnation. Nobody wants to come to the church and be condemned by church people. And the Bible says there's no condemnation while in Christ. So once we're in Christ, there's even less condemnation. Jesus even said that the rebellious world is condemned not by other church people, but by God because they're in sin and rebellion against him. Jesus said, I came not to condemn the world, but that through me the world would be saved. So in both instances, if you're not a believer and you turn to Christ, there's no condemnation. As a believer, there's still no condemnation because you're in Christ. So condemnation is wrong. We shouldn't practice it. The other problem is coddling. Now, this has become fashionable. Um, we, the pastors here, went to um, the East Coast Pastors Conference this week and one of the big concerns and one of the big subjects is the things that ministries do to try to get people into the church. And one of the things ministries do is to coddle sin, is to pretend they don't see it, is to look the other way, is to not preach about sin from the pulpit, not preach about hell, and not preach about why Jesus had to die. We can't coddle sin because we don't know why we're saved and the, the effect of salvation has it takes the, the bite out of it, or it takes the beauty out of salvation when we don't know what we're saved from. Well, I'm okay. Why do I need Jesus? If we're coddling sin, then we don't understand that. So both of those are wrong. 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So now many more Samaritans believe because of actually speaking with Jesus. So they needed a little bit more proof, and that's okay. You're going to run into different types of folks. Number one, the first type. Because of whatever reason, the time is right and they're ripe. They're ripe. Number two, those that are interested, but just a little bit more skeptical, they need more, and that's okay. Now, in the Greek, the, you can look at this as not because of what you said, but the word in Greek is dia, which means through. So we believe through what you said, but in addition, gar, the reason, is because we heard from his own word. Now, when we look at this, we say, well, gee, how do we get to the second part without the physical Jesus being here? Very simple. He left us his word. He left us his word. He says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Number two, prayer. 
Do you realize that when we pray, God listens? You know, we're so accustomed to praying that we don't realize how powerful prayer is. The minute you start to pray and, and you're invoking the God of all creation and he's listening and he wants to act, that's impressive. Prayer, very good. Uh, and three, that the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit will solidify this. He stayed there two days, the Bible says. Why? Because they wanted him there. Oftentimes through the scripture, he went somewhere and didn't stay long because they really didn't want him there. They really were unconcerned. They were unmoved. They were apathetic. So he went to another village. And today, do we want him? Because if we do want him, and I tell that to people, I say, listen, I'm talking to someone about the Lord and, and they're really, they have a desire. I say, listen, now go home when there's nobody there and just start talking to your Lord. You know, ask him, tell him that you want to get to know him. You want to pray and, and know that you're speaking to him. He'll make himself real to you. It might be a slow process, but it'll start to grow. It's beautiful. So a few last words on the Samaritan issue is, and if I didn't make it completely clear, it was in vogue to hate these people. Even the disciples, you can see through their actions and their words, they were wary of the situation with Jesus. Probably they thought, well, we'll go to the village, we'll buy some food, we'll get refreshed, and we'll get out of here, because nobody wants to be in Samaria. Jesus ends up staying two days there, even after speaking with this woman. So it was in vogue, it was fashionable to despise these people. But, and I, I don't think it's a mistake, Jesus found the person who was the, the bottom of the bottom of the bottom in that society to minister to and to use as an evangelist. So you can come to me after service and say, you don't know my past. You don't know my baggage. You don't know how many times I've fallen down and I don't think the Lord can use me. I challenge you. Yes, he can. He absolutely can. So there's an encouragement there. How worthless do you think you are? Forget about it. You know? I find that the more we think we can't do something, God says, okay, now you're ready. So, so backwards. When we think, yes, in the beginning, as, you know, I was so prideful, just reading the Bible as, as, as a new Christian, really getting an application, an aptitude, but my heart was in the wrong place. And every time I tried to assert myself, the Lord would go, not yet. wasn't until I was asked about this position that I said, oh, I can't do this. And I really meant it. I don't want it. And uh, how I ended up here is only by a miracle, you know? <laughs> God is good. Are you excited when you hear about this? Isn't it excited to put yourself in this woman's shoes and the villager's shoes and see a whole village completely turned upside down for the Lord? Oh, it's really, really good stuff. Isn't it exciting when you, God gives you a small opportunity with a person, maybe a coworker or a neighbor, and you get to just tell them about and just with a smile and really meaning how the Lord has done things in your life and, and they become receptive to it? And you see them warming up or thawing out, right? It's, it's just an exciting thing. So we're going to move on. Chapter 4 continues, verse 43. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast for they had also gone to the feast. Now, taking the scriptures together, it almost looks like a contradiction here, and we, we put the other gospels together. It does seem that the Galileans at first 
were not really impressed with Jesus. As a boy, he grew up, he may have been a great kid, never sinned, but that's what they knew him as, the really nice Jewish boy down the block. You know, no real miracles, nothing really exciting until he kicks off his ministry. Then they start to hear about these miracles. Now, all of a sudden, they're receptive to him. They kind of maybe want to claim him as a hometown mascot of sorts. Maybe put his image on their football jerseys. I don't know. But you see a, a contrast between the Samaritans and the Galileans. Samaritans were the despised people, but they were hungry and God used them. And the Galileans, uh, kind of a little lackluster, but they saw the miracles and they were kind of warming up to them. This is a weird principle that a complete stranger can receive what you say, but some in your own family won't. <laughs> and we've all been through that. I mean, I know pastors who have hundreds, if not thousands in their church, and still friends and family are not saved. So it's true, a prophet is, is without honor in his own home. So you see that principle, 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus knew the heart of man. And sadly, as we look at this situation and we look at the nobleman, it took a tragedy to get his attention. And that's sad because sometimes it takes a near-death experience or a tragedy to open a person's eyes to say, gee, I'm not going to live forever, nor is my family. I need to start thinking about eternal things. Even worse is a situation where there's a miracle or answered prayer, and then when that kind of dies down, a person goes back to their old ways. We've seen that as well. And I think someone who exemplifies that the most is King Saul in the Old Testament. We're covering that on Wednesday nights, 1 Samuel. King Saul, you know, the Lord just kept showing himself to him, showing himself to him. And King Saul kept going back to the old well and drinking from that water, the old well. And he got thirsty again. And his life ended in tragedy. Jesus also rebukes those that their only uh, way to believe is through signs and wonders. Now, he says this a few times in the scripture. He calls them a perverse generation, those that just look for a sign. They're just looking for a sign and wonder. Actually, the Bible tells us in Revelation that after the rapture, the Antichrist and the, 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 you know, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, they will all work together to do lying signs and wonders. And in Matthew's gospel, it says there'll be a time that these signs and wonders will be so convincing that the elect is, is really teetering on believing this stuff and get, getting caught up in it. So be careful of signs and wonders. Everything has to be reapplied back to the scripture. 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Classic Jesus never turned anyone away. He always had mercy. But Jesus didn't go with the nobleman. And you see a little banter there. He says, My son is sick, you gotta come. And Jesus responds, and he goes, No, you, you gotta come down here. You gotta come see my son. Notice that Jesus didn't go with him. Now, this nobleman, maybe his pride was getting in the way of his belief and his faith. And this nobleman, remember, this person had a high position. Uh, maybe he was so used to saying something and everybody would follow him because of his position in life. 
Jesus knew that this man needed to get past the pridefulness of his position uh, to work in his heart. Okay? So that's, uh, that's something that we see with the nobleman. And, you know, if you remember in 2 Kings, Naaman the Syrian had a very similar situation. Naaman the Syrian had leprosy and went to see Elisha, the prophet. And uh, he, you know, brought his entourage and he ended up at the prophet's door and it's Naaman the Syrian here to see you. And uh, Elisha tells somebody, well, go outside and tell him just to dip in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman's furious. He expected because of his position that the prophet would come out and wave his hand. And he became arrogant. He said, aren't there better rivers in Syria, the Abinar and the Farpar? You know, it's, I got to go dip in that dirty Jordan River. And it took us a, a humble servant to talk sense into him. Naaman, you got leprosy. <laughs> Your condition's not getting any better. Just go do what he says. And he does, and he becomes clean. 51. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The nobleman does a little investigation and finds out that from his servants that the time that his son all of a sudden got better was the exact same time that Jesus said, your son lives. And I'll tell you this, God is always right on time. Amen. This past uh, Wednesday, we covered 1 Samuel 26 and 27, and everything, you know, David was on the run. He was being hunted down by the king, but, oh, the Lord just always had him escape out of a perilous situation. King Saul would throw the spear at David, and it would never hit him, because God was protecting David. In chapter 27, verse 1, David all of a sudden has a crisis of faith and says, I know now that King Saul will kill me. All the promises of God were, were washed away. Why? Because he didn't feel that God was acting quick enough. That's when we get ourselves in trouble. And I don't minimize you or me or anybody who's been dealing with an affliction for 10 years or an unsafe spouse for 20 years. You got to hang in there, though, because God is right on time. His timing is perfect. We see that time and time again in the scripture. And I believe that as we see this exact timing issue you know, that we can definitely get that out of this text. And as a result, this man's whole household believed. Very impressive. The nobleman's crisis led him to Christ. Now, don't despair when a loved one goes through a hard time. You know, many of you come to me and say, I know this prodigal or this person in my family. And then maybe you'll come to me later and say, something horrible has happened. They're in the hospital. Sometimes it'll take a tragedy to get their attention. Sometimes it could be the Lord working. I mean, what's worse? A tragedy that brings somebody to the truth of salvation or a person being self-deceived going through their whole lives and never being saved. The goal is that we want to see each other in eternity, right? So continue to pray and continue to just trust God and just say to him, listen, I know your timing is best, but I'm, I'm getting a little impatient here, so forgive me. It happens. I can't tell you how many times God has turned a mess into a miracle. I've seen it a lot. Now, if I could go back and make the dichotomy between chapters 3 and 4. Remember, in chapter 3, we, we looked at Nicodemus. 
In chapter 4, we looked at the woman at the well, and both of these historical figures Jesus dealt with on an individual basis. I would say this, that chapter 3 is about getting saved individually. How do I get saved? What does it mean? Am I going to heaven? All these questions. Chapter 3 answers that. Chapter 4, though, is do I care if anyone else is saved? So I think that you can really, you can really parse that out like that. Because it's hard to say that we love God if we're not concerned about the unsaved world that God loves. That's right in the crux of John 3.16. It isn't good enough to say, hey, I'm saved, I made it. I'm just going to sit back and kick back. No, we need to be concerned that others are saved as well. In John 3 and 4, there's vast differences. What we also see is not one size fits all. It was a completely different way that Jesus ministered to the woman at the well versus Nicodemus. Some of us will give out tracts. Some of us will have discussions and sit with people. Some of us will just hand the Bible. Some of us will give a card and say, well, this is the church I go to and it's really ministered to me. Others will just try to be a good example. And when they find out you're a Christian, you don't even have to do anything. You just minister to that person. So what it shows is one size doesn't fit all. It's not about technique. It's about the heart behind the technique is what God is looking at. I guess I have this question for anybody here who doesn't know the Lord. I want to encourage you. Has the world left you hungry? Has drinking from the world's well left you thirsty? Has when you got the promotion and the other promotion and the other promotion, you keep drinking from that well, you get thirsty again? And then the other thing is, is the, you, know, you know, we can sometimes do that with children. Well, I have a child and I'm going to have another child and that's all awesome. Before you know, you've got five or six kids but that might not solve the void or the emptiness inside of us. We try different things, right? We try different techniques, relationships. Divorce rate is so high. Why are so many people unfulfilled? Because we're drinking at the world's well. I got news for you. It didn't satisfy me either. And I tried a whole bunch of other stuff. It only caused me a lot of pain in my young life. And if I would have come to the Lord sooner... I would have avoided a lot of that pain. So my question to you, if you don't know the Lord, and again, I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm not beating you up here. I hope my tone is, is, is right here. I want to love you, man. I want to love you into the kingdom. I, wanna, I want you to be as excited as I am. I want you to see that um, I just was a mess before Christ, and now God is using me to reach people. It isn't me. It's him. You know, there's fulfillment in my life. There's purpose. I could die tomorrow and be fine. You know what I'm saying? Or today. I'm fulfilled. How long is it that you will visit the world's well and still be unsatisfied? Because Jesus said, he or she, you or I, if we drink the living water, if we drink of the water that Jesus provides, we will never thirst again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this awesome time that Jesus spent with this woman. And not only was his time an evangelistic moment, but it was also a teaching moment for his disciples. That maybe if they had come there with societal prejudices, or this is the way it's done, this is the way it's always been done. Nobody likes these people. By the end of the...